Welcome to Classics Confidential. In this episode, we'll be talking about East Africa and the classical tradition. I've been always interested in the way neoclassical buildings are part of the urban landscape of so-called peripheric places. All the voices you hear in today's episode belong to academics who have contributed to a new special issue of the journal Le Cahier d'Afrique de l'Est, and it's called Global History, East Africa and the Classical Traditions. This issue has been edited by Dr. Carla Bocchetti of the French Institute of Research in Africa, based in Nairobi. The basic idea of my work is to study material culture of ancient Greece and Rome as a hybrid global product. When you travel and you go beyond central places of culture, you see that classics have another way of being, another kind of language. They install a dialogue with people. It's not only a matter of saying you don't belong. So we have to move on from, from that point to say, what is the dialogue classics have for people outside? Earlier this spring, Carla came to London to tell us more about the special issue and to introduce us to some of the people who contributed to it. First, we went to King's College London to meet Dr. Daniel Orles. I asked Dan to talk us through some of the work that's already been done in this field, including one book that I remembered encountering as an undergraduate back in the late 1990s, when it already had the status of a classic. So Martin Bernal was a, an expert in Chinese culture uh, at Cornell, an English guy. And back in the, in the 70s, he decided to change course. And he became very interested in what he called the Afro-Asiatic roots of classical civilization. And by that, he meant that he was interested in how ancient Greece emerged out of the cultures of the Near East and ancient Egypt. Black Athena was published in three volumes. The first volume came out in 1987. And in that volume, he writes an intellectual history of the, of the discipline of classics. And he argues that as the 19th century progressed, Greek culture got whitewashed. So the connections between Greece and the south and the east of the Mediterranean uh, got disarticulated from one another. And classicists argued more and more fervently that Greece was the product of an Aryan or Dorian invasion of people from the north. And so he then argued in volumes two and three of the trilogy for archaeological and linguistic connections between ancient Greece and Egypt and the Near East. So that's, in a nutshell, um, a very brief synopsis of several hundreds of pages of, uh, of, uh, of uh, text. Dan's own edited volume, African Athena, marked the 20th anniversary of the publication of Black Athena, and it revisited some of the questions that Black Athena had raised, although from a quite different direction. Rather than thinking about the presence of Africans in ancient Greek culture, I became very interested in the presence of Africans and African-Americans in the invention of classics as a discipline in the modern era. We look at black early modern scholars, we look at 19th century African-American classicists, people involved in setting up black colleges, black liberal arts colleges in the United States and how they 
taught Greek and Latin in those new higher education institutes. There's chapters on the use of classical rhetoric in, the, in speeches of abolitionists in the 19th century. And we've also got chapters on the importance of Greco-Roman antiquity in modern black fiction, so novels by Toni Morrison, as well as the poetry of Derek Walcott, a St. Lucian writer who wrote the epic poem Omeros. African Athena included a chapter written by the Congolese philosopher Valentin Yves Medimbi. Dan has since gone on to study Medimbi's writings and his chapter in Carla's new special issue looks at Medimbi's use of the Oedipus myth as a metaphor for the relationship between colonial father, in inverted commas, and colonised son. Medimbi himself was born in the Belgian Congo which then became Zaire, and it's now called the Democratic Republic of Congo. When he was born in the 1940s, he was one of the lucky few to get a colonial education. So he was educated by the Benedictines. And he did so well that he got the chance to do a PhD in Belgium. And he was a classical philologist. So he did a PhD on the word air in Latin and Greek. <laughs> um, so he was an extremely well-read uh, guy. And when he came back after finishing his PhD, this was soon after Zaire had become an independent country under the president Mobutu. And at a very young age, he found himself appointed as a senior professor at one of um, Zaire's brand new universities. Uh, but nevertheless, he wasn't very happy living under Mobutu's regime, very quickly became very brutal and highly autocratic. And he eventually moved in exile to the United States. And his interest in classical texts c continued, actually. And he was able to write about classical texts more openly once he was outside of Zaire, away from the dictatorial influence of Mobutu. It was while he was in the States that Medimbi wrote his landmark book, The Invention of Africa. It's a history of the colonial representations of Africa from the 1500s into the 20th century. And he talks a lot about how Africa was invented as a concept uh, by uh, colonial discourse, by colonial language. And people for 500 years in Europe and North America often had very little interest in the realities of Africans, and they were much more interested in relying on stereotypes. So a big part of Medimbi's project was to think about how ancient stereotypes about Africa were recycled by modern colonial writers. So a large part of the invention of Africa, this book he wrote in 1985, explores how um, Herodotus's depictions of um, people living in Africa with several heads and so on, that, that, is, that language was reproduced almost verbatim in some instances by explorers and missionaries and that sense that Africa was a savage and barbaric uh, land, was, which is reflected in Herodotus' writings and other ancient writers, that was reflected in 19th century colonial anthropology as well. Valentin Yves Medimbi's work gives some powerful examples of how ancient classical views of Africa permeate later representations of the continent too. 
And some of the chapters in Dr. Carla Bocchetti's new volume take a similar approach. Carla's own chapter looks at early modern European maps of Africa, which are full of distinctly classical presences. When we start looking at an early modern map of Africa, we see a lot of classics in action there. So uh, the classical tradition, as well as biblical reference, were two important European backgrounds which were projected into maps. And one of these is very telling, which is the cyclops. In some map of Africa, the cyclops live in the interior of the continent, and the cyclops is a very powerful symbol of the uncivilized. If we remember in the Odyssey, the cyclops is a giant with one eye, therefore not a human, but a monster. He has no agora, he doesn't cultivate, he doesn't drink wine, he doesn't build ships. So he's a barbarian per se. And this idea has been uh, portrayed in, in the interior of Africa as a mysterious continent. And that was bad because th that helped to create the image of Africa as a dark continent. Other maps show Africa personified as a woman. That's an image that's familiar from Roman art. Most of the maps of Africa, the cartographers include a lot of information about the interior of Africa. They also focus on the cartouche in which Africa was personalized as a woman, half naked, most of the time riding a crocodile next to a lion, holding ivory. So this personification of the, of the continent was permanent for many, many centuries. So in some ways, the imagery of early modern European maps can be seen to have roots in Greco-Roman understandings of geography. But Carla argues that the genealogy of these early modern maps is actually much more layered and intricate than many people realise. And she shows how the Arab and European maps often drew on much older African knowledge of the local area. The Sahili people lived in, in the east coast of Africa and they had a connection with the rim of the Indian Ocean as early as the 8th century. They had contact with Persians, with the Omanis, with the Hadramis, which is the people from Yemen, Indian, Chinese. So they were very active in the Indian Ocean trade route. People have found out that the Swahili built ships and went into oceanic, interoceanic trade. And they were members of the crew and pilots as well. And they have a very good knowledge of local sea of the Indian Ocean is very dangerous in some places, like at the Mozambique Channel. There's a, a rough sea there and most of the pilots were local Swahili. They also have, within the social context, a lot of songs and poems which relate to maritime metaphors for everyday life. And there is a very important poem called Inkichafi, in which uh, a lot of reference are made in terms of metaphor for a good social behavior and the way of being navigating the ocean. We have to assume that most of the local knowledge of the Swahili went into the Arab corpus of geographical tradition, and then also Europeans were also using this Arabic Tradition. So in that way, Swahili is the basis of both tradition in terms of the East African coast. So Carla Bacchetti's work is effectively complicating some simple stereotypes about early modern geographical knowledge. Other chapters in her edited volume introduce us to stereotypes that were actually pretty complicated to begin with. Firoz Vasunia is a professor at University College London 
He's worked extensively on the classical tradition in India, and his chapter in Carla's volume explains how India and Ethiopia were often confused or conflated in ancient sources. The problem with actually understanding what ancient writers mean about Ethiopia is that there's a lack of clarity about the reference. And it's very difficult for us to try and understand with any precision what Ethiopia means. And it's not only our fault, the ancient writers themselves are slightly imprecise about that word. The term might denote a place to the south of Egypt or to the southeast of Egypt, um, but it's not exactly clear what this location is. And then there seems to be a further confusion that arises as well because Ethiopia appears to denote people who are of sunburnt complexion, slightly darker complexion than the Greeks. And occasionally we even get the impression that the word Ethiopia is used to refer to people that live in what we would today refer to as India or India, Pakistan, South Asia. So um, there's a there's a confusion, there's an ambiguity about this this reference. There's an interesting story that arises in relation to Alexander the Great where he is said to be interested in the source of the river Nile and he attempts to find the source of the Nile in India and according to some versions of this story he even thinks he's found the sources of the Nile. Uh, in India, in northwest India. So um, the story is probably apocryphal, but it seems to give us some sense of the fantasy that lies behind this confusion. And it also gives us a sense of the imaginary place taken up by Ethiopia. The thing is, as Firoz explains in his chapter, sea trade between Northeast Africa and India begins in the Hellenistic period, so some people must have known that these were two different places. Why did so many people still get confused? I think it's partly about uh, uncertainty over the origins of exotic peoples, whether they're Ethiopians or Indians. It's partly attempting to understand complexion and race. Uh, and. Um, I think once once the confusion sets in, it's then it exerts such a powerful hold on the on the mental world of Greeks and Romans that it's difficult to dislodge. The confusion between India and Ethiopia can be found later on in medieval texts and in Renaissance times. And even in the 18th and 19th century, there's an impulse to associate the two places in a way that somehow goes against empirical geographical knowledge. There's some interesting examples that arise towards the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century. So William Jones, who we think of as the founder of the theory of Indo-European languages, uh, in one of his essays suggests that there would have been close contact between Ethiopia and India and he seems to imply that uh, Ethiopians occupied parts of Indian land and he thought that racially Indians and Ethiopians looked alike. He thought that there were certain hill tribes in India that, that reminded him of Ethiopians and so he, he posited that there was some very ancient historical contact between Ethiopians and Indians. So then when we move further 
uh, into the 19th century, there's uh, another British writer, Francis Wilford, who posits ancient connection between uh, Ethiopia and India. And he goes far beyond William Jones and others and, and suggests uh, really esoteric connections between Greek myth and Indian myth. And then it turned out much later on that he was in fact conned by some Indian Brahmin priests who were fabricating Sanskrit verses and giving them to him. Some of these, these, these dubious texts, they seem to have amazing references to characters from the Bible and Greek mythology, and this itself should have set off alarm bells on Wilford's side, but he so wanted to believe that there was this contact between the Mediterranean world, between Ethiopia and India, that he happily went along with the texts that were being given to him by these priests. So far we've been dealing with images and metaphors, visual and literary descriptions of Africa that have been constructed at a distance, often by people who've never been there. In the second half of the episode, we're going to make a journey to look at some neoclassical architecture in East African cities. Dr Sarah Longair is a lecturer in the School of History and Heritage at the University of Lincoln, and she's an expert in the history of the British Empire. Her chapter in Carla's volume looks at the work of John Sinclair, a colonial official who also designed buildings. Sinclair started his architectural career in London, but he never actually finished his training. Um, he was there in the offices of John Loughborough Pearson in the 1890s. As Sinclair said, um, he didn't see that he was going to be the next Christopher Wren, so decided to go on exciting adventures in his career around the world. So he took a position uh, without, uh, without any architectural role attached to it. But soon on his arrival in East Africa, in Mombasa in the late 1890s, it was heard that he had some architectural architectural training. And it's an interesting feature of these newer colonies that they arrive with basic administration. There is only a handful of people, there's 30 or 40 administrators in uh, the region at that time. So they look to those um, individuals with any training to begin to design buildings. Sinclair moved to Zanzibar in 1899 and became the principal architectural voice in the British community for the next two decades, until he left the island in 1923. Uh, Zanzibar is made up of two islands off the east coast of Africa, um, opposite Dar es Salaam and on the mainland coast. The period that I examined the 19th and 20th century, uh, Zanzibar was under the control of the sultans of Oman, who relocated their capital there in the 1840s. This Omani sultanate ruled over uh, the majority of the people who were Swahili, uh, but there were also a significant South Asian minority. Um, they were um, involved in mercantile and trading activities. Sarah explains in her chapter how John Sinclair's architectural style responded to a lot of these multicultural influences. He's known most famously for very eclectic designs, which is a, a style which was popular in Britain at the time, drawing on many different forms together to try and create an elegant whole. He took this to some extremes, um, some architectural historians might argue, in Zanzibar by incorporating verandas, which were inspired by South Asian community buildings, um, crenellations and forms from Omani palaces, as well as various polylobed arches um, inspired by local and international forms of Islamic architecture. And at the same time, these Islamic architectural models were filtered through a very British lens. Uh, much of the British 
thought about Zanzibar town is that it didn't look as Islamic as they wanted it to. So people criticise it for having very plain architecture compared to the cities, um, the great eastern cities, as they say. They, they, they mourn the fact that there aren't enough minarets and domes to make it look like that. And this is because of the Ibathi Islam that was practised there. They have very plain, unostentatious mosques. And so there, there wouldn't be large, tall minarets as the British expected to see. So we can see, I think there's an element in which Sinclair is trying to bring some of those elements. He does use domes a lot. He uses towers as a way of animating the landscape as well. You can read more about Sinclair's buildings in Zanzibar and Kenya in the special issue. And you can see some photos of specific buildings on the Classics Confidential website. But after they were built, these neoclassical buildings took on a life of their own and became part of a sprawling and ever-changing urban fabric. Dr Gordon Omenya is a historian at Pwani University in Kenya and he's been researching the South Asian communities who settled in the Kenyan region of Kisumu in the early 20th century. I was tracing their uh, settlement, their interaction with the locals, the Africans in Kisumu, and then how those interactions actually shaped their relationship uh, with, the, with the Africans living around Kisumu uh, around that time. And you realize that uh, these Asians put up some schools with some classical kind of uh, uh, Indian architectural design. They also established hospitals. The fact that uh, the colonial governments had a, a kind of a, a, a racial structure, you find that uh, the way they lived was racially skewed. But despite the fact that uh, there was that racial uh, hierarchy, uh, because of the sheer need of necessity, the Indians decided to integrate because Africans were their customers. In some cases, you'll realize that uh, they were used as probably agents of colonialism, but uh, they went beyond that to interact and integrate with, uh, with, with Africans, especially uh, those who are living in the rural areas of, of, of Kisumu. Gordon's been looking at the kinds of buildings that the South Asian community put up. They were simple, but if you look at them, you know, they still have the Indian classical architectural designs. If you look at Kisumu generally and you go to Milimani areas where these people lived, you know, you still find those classical kind of uh, buildings. But again, you also find that uh, there are certain classical cultural behaviors of Indians that uh, Africans have kind, uh, kind of adopted. Nowadays, you find people trying, not many, but uh, they try to have some Indian kind of clothing uh, where they just do uh, a resemblance of a, a sari, the, the Indian kind of a cloth. But, you know, they use the African fabric. But you see the design, of course, will remain the same. When I read Gordon's article in Carla's volume, I was very struck by a photo that showed demonstrators attacking a sculpture that had been erected by the South Asian community in Kasumu town in 2014. And I asked Gordon to tell me more about it. That sculpture was something that was being put up to commemorate like 100 years of uh, these guys being in Kisumu. And the locals had some kind of misconception about this culture because for them, they thought that, uh, you know, these Indians were like trying to, to, to bring, to put like an idol at the center of, of Kisumu town. So for them, the, the way they, they took that culture was like, uh, you know, 
because majority of the locals are Christians, and because their religion, of course, they believe that there is only one God. So they thought that, uh, you know, that was a symbol of another God or idol worshipping kind of. And then they, they decided to try and, and bring it down, you see. So, so basically that's why you, you saw in the picture they were trying to demolish it. And did it have any religious significance for the people who put it up or was it just a complete misunderstanding? I think it was just a complete misunderstanding because uh, the Indians, of course, have played a very significant role in the economic development of Kisumu. And I think uh, it was just something that they wanted to put in place. Just to commemorate maybe the number of years that they have spent in Kisumu, they have become part and parcel of the society. So they felt that uh, if they put that thing, at least uh, it will go down in the books of history that uh, these guys have been here for as far back as 100 years, you see. Gordon's work reminds us that buildings and monuments have long afterlives and that their meanings change over time. We ended our conversation by talking about the afterlife of some of the buildings constructed in the colonial period by people like John Sinclair and his colleagues. When people look at them, uh, as much as colonialism is, is now over, but they can still I mean, remember how things happened in the past and how then things have changed. Because uh, you don't, of course, see uh, those architectural design in the, in the modern uh, city because the new buildings are coming up, of course, using modern uh, architectural designs in terms of the structure. But you see, like, uh, like for me, when I see the National Archives, when I see that former provincial commissioner's office, I just, as a historian, I just reflect back and try to imagine how things used to be way back, maybe in the 20s, early in the 1910, when these structures actually were put in place. And it's the same with the, the railway station, because that's actually the symbol of colonialism in, in Kenya. So if you look at the railway station, you just see some kind of a foreign building, but of course with architectural design that uh, resembles the wide, I mean, some of the buildings that uh, were actually observed in the wider uh, Roman Empire or the wider uh, British Empire, for that matter. So, so they re revived some memories, especially to people, of uh, how buildings were. And of course, somebody can also walk that path and see how far people have changed. That brings us to the end of our episode. We've only covered a small fraction of the research presented in Carla's volume, but luckily you can go and read the whole thing open access on the French Institute's website. We'll post a link to that on the Classics Confidential site, where you can also find some photographs and links to further research by our speakers. And you can watch a video that was made by Henry Stead on the day that we recorded with Firoz, Carla and Dan in London. This programme featured the voices of Carla Bocchetti, Daniel Orles, Firoz Vasunia, Sarah Longair, Gordon Omenia and me, Jessica Hughes. Thank you very much for listening and please do come and join in the conversation on Twitter with the hashtag ClassicsConfide.